This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to keep the trend going. He is risen. He is risen. He is right there behind you, Cole. He's <laughs> everywhere. Well, happy Easter. Um, we kind of always have joked at Emmaus that whenever we have holidays, everybody goes home. Um, but now that we have babies and, and kids, seems like people are <laughs> visiting here. <laughs> and I love it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we get to celebrate that awesome reality this morning that he is risen. The Christ that, that died and was laid in a tomb is no longer dead. And so... Amen. So we get to remember this amazing affirmation that Jesus, a dead man, physically rose from the dead. And we get to think about all that entails this morning. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to be here this morning to worship with everybody. Excited for brunch afterwards, too. Um, but excited to, to get into the, the end of John here. Uh, but before we jump in, let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful that we get to gather together here today and to sing of your goodness and your greatness and your holiness. We're thankful that we get to stand up here and say with enthusiasm that, that he is risen. We have uh, such an amazing story that we get to talk through, uh, not only today, but, but every day, but especially today as we remember just the, the, the pillar of, on which this story turns, Jesus' resurrection. And so I pray that as we uh, walk through the last chapter of John, as we walk through a second to last chapter of John, just his Easter narrative, that you would stir our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself. And we need your spirit to do that. I pray that you would um, allow us to hear with open ears and receive with a soft heart because uh, our hearts are all too often hard. We need you to soften them and speak to us and pray that you would do that. Uh, pray that you would graciously call each of our names this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Cool, so um, if you've been with us for a while, we have been kind of walking through uh, the Gospel of John in kind of a roundabout way. Uh, we've been spending the past seven weeks talking through Jesus' seven I am statements. So we haven't really been going through John verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but we've been focusing on these seven key I am statements. And so today uh, we get to hear John's retelling of the Easter narrative. And so John's gospel is the last one uh, that was written uh, both in your Bible and uh, likely historically as well. And so each of the other three have their other uh, additional accounts, but um, yeah, we get to, we're spending some time in John's recollection of the story and as we go, we're going to see some of the things that might not have been in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just because John kind of wants to fill in some of the gaps they might have, have missed. But um, a couple of days ago, also, we got to celebrate Good Friday with our friends at Redemption Church Denver. Um, super thankful for them and for their hosting. Uh, they've been a huge blessing to us, and it's been cool to get to know some of them and talk with them. But on Friday, we celebrated the fact that Jesus who was the only sinless man to ever live, died the most sinful death 
to ever have happened. Amen. And so at Good Friday, this, the, the proclamation that John the Baptist said at the very beginning of John's gospel, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, came true on Good Friday in all of its gruesome reality. And so the reason we, we want to celebrate Good Friday and that we want to celebrate Easter is to try as much as we can to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are in the story so that we can see the, the narrative that God is unfolding throughout history as much as we can. And so as we step into the story today, this morning, Jesus' followers could not be more disheartened. They couldn't be more discouraged. And so i uh, actually going to uh, rely on Luke a little bit to kind of give us a pulse on what the disciples were feeling. And so after Jesus had risen from the dead and his disciples didn't yet know it, there were two of them walking along a road to a village called Emmaus. Um, and ironically, but uh, it was, they were walking on a road and it says Jesus walked up behind them and he asked them what they're talking about. And it says the two men, they, they stopped in their tracks and Luke even says, they looked sad. And so uh, if you want to read along with me, uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 18, they answered him, are you the only, one, only visitor to Jerusalem who did not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And so that's a perfect picture into just the feelings and the, just the status of, of Jesus' first followers. They're disheartened, they're discouraged. They're defeated because they knew that God had promised a savior. They knew that they had promised that God had promised a Messiah who would come to redeem Israel from oppressive rule. But they had also seen that man that they were convinced was that Messiah, that was that king. They had seen him die a gruesome death. And now, or so they thought, he lay dead in a tomb. Yes, Lord. And so as we walk through the story, we're going to see that Jesus, he graciously reveals himself with increasing clarity to an increasing group of people with increasing glory. And so despite the narrative that Jesus' disciples were in, despite the narrative that they believed, we're going to see Jesus unfold an infinitely better narrative and truer narrative. And so uh, let's jump into John, the first couple verses. Um, in uh, chapter 20, it says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so immediately, right out of the gate in the story, we see the narrative that Jesus' disciples are believing and so we see when Mary sees the rock rolled away from the entrance of the tomb, her first thought is that his, Jesus' grave had, been, grave had been robbed. They had taken his body somewhere else. And so as silly as that might sound, that Jesus' grave had been robbed, that was actually a pretty popular thing to do back then. It was a pretty prominent criminal activity. And so uh, a lot of times the uh, people who would be at risk of grave robbing would be those who were rich 
who would go and be buried with jewelry and with expensive clothes. And so you wouldn't think of Jesus being a suspect for his grave being robbed. But we also learn that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, he took Jesus' body and he wrapped it in linen and he put it in the tomb. And so as gross as this might sound, those linens were valuable and could draw a high price if they were sold. Um, and then also Matthew's gospel tells us that uh, the authorities, Jewish authorities, actually suspected Jesus' followers of breaking into the tomb and stealing his body and saying that he had risen from the dead, basically creating a huge hoax. Um, and so what they did is they placed guards outside of the tomb and they sealed the tomb so that they'd be able to tell if anybody got in. And so they basically made it impossible to get into this tomb. And so as crazy as it might sound that Mary would jump straight to, they've taken his body and they placed it somewhere else. It's not a far-fetched theory. But the irony of all of this, the irony that this is where Mary uh, would jump to is that Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for this moment by telling them in multiple different ways, multiple different times that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would raise from the dead. Amen. And so Mark actually recounts three specific instances where Jesus says he's gonna go to Jerusalem, he's gonna be arrested, he's gonna suffer, he's gonna die. But three days later, he's gonna raise from the dead. So Mark's recounted that three separate times. But Mary and the disciples here, Peter and John, we'll see later too, was so, they're so caught up in the depths of their grief and the circumstances surrounding them that that first gut reaction directed their entire narrative. And so um, I know if, if you've been with Emmaus uh, for very long at all, you've probably heard us talk about the Enneagram. Um, the Enneagram, if you don't know, uh, there's lots of people who are much more versed at the Enneagram than me, but the Enneagram is basically like a, a personality profile. And so you have numbers one through nine, and everybody falls somewhere on that one through nine scale. And uh, everybody also kind of leans more towards one way or another. And so I am told that I am a five wing six, which means a five is, is the investigator, but the six the six is the one that's called the loyalist, but another thing about the six wing is that you're very familiar with the worst case scenario. You know it, and you know the escape route. You know what you'd do if that worst case scenario presented itself. You have a plan in action. And so I know we have some other sixes. I know Ben is a six. I know Becca Clark is a six. So I know you guys can resonate with that, but my bet is that we can all, to some degree or another, resonate with the way that Mary and Peter and John are feeling right here. They're jumping to the worst case scenario that Jesus's body has been removed from the tomb and wondering how often we react to our circumstances just like that. So seeing that rock rolled away from the entrance and assuming the worst possible scenario, rather than remembering the many times that Jesus said this exact thing would happen, and so they were looking only at the circumstances in front of them that were driving them into a panic. They'd forgotten the things that Jesus said would happen. Either, they, either that or they just couldn't believe that the things that he said would happen were real. And so knowing the promises of Jesus, knowing the goodness of God and the sustaining power of the Spirit, how often do we stress? Do we panic? Do we worry? 
Do we grieve the circumstances around us, either forgetting or not trusting those truths about God's goodness and love for us all? So let's keep reading to see what happens next. Um, So verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And so that's weird right there. Do you hear that? He stoops to look in and he sees linen cloths. And so if Jesus's body had been stolen, then why would those linen cloths still be there? And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So do you hear that? Do you hear, like John is talking a lot about these linen cloths. And so these linen cloths are really prominent in John's mind. It's like when you're in a panic and you, and you remember all the things that happened, it's like time slows down. And you remember all these little details. That's what's going on here. John is in a panic. He's sitting at the, at the at the mouth of the tomb, and he's seeing these these empty grave clothes. And something something isn't right here. I shouldn't say something isn't right. Something doesn't add up. And so, um, yeah, so I also, I want us to grasp a little bit of of what's going on here. Just all of the things that that might be running through Peter and John's mind that that would put them in the frame of mind that they're in, and that would, yeah, be going through his head. But um, ever since the fall, ever since evil entered into the world, ever since death became a reality in God's good and perfect creation, there's been one who has been promised who would finally restore God's good and perfect order to his creation. And so when you look through the, the Old Testament, You see that the entirety of the Old Testament screams in anticipation of this one coming king who would finally make things right again. And God's people have been waiting on this one king for not hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. They've been waiting on this one promised king who would bring order to God's good creation again. And here, Peter and John, standing at the mouth of an open grave of the one they thought was this same king, But this king had died. They saw him. He was definitively dead. They took all of that in in full horror as uh, Jesus laid in that tomb with with, uh, holes in his wrists and holes in his uh, feet where the nails had gone through, with a hole in his side where he'd been run through with a spear just to make sure that there was absolutely no chance that this man could still be alive. But as Peter stepped into Jesus' empty tomb, and as John sees Jesus' grave clothes lying abandoned and even folded up neatly to the side and left behind, John begins to realize that there's only one explanation for what he could be seeing right now. And so in verse 8, we see, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. And so John saw these empty linen cloths in the tomb, and that's all that he needed to see. John saw 
and he believed. Now he believed that Jesus, his master, was no longer dead. And when we keep reading in verse 9, we see that John, he doesn't even, it says that he doesn't even understand the scriptures yet. And so uh, in the coming days, we're going to see that that's going to change really quickly. But right here, when John is standing in the tomb on Easter morning, he doesn't even understand the scripture yet. But he does understand one thing, that his master is no longer dead. Amen. He understood that God had fulfilled his promise and that Jesus was this promised king. This king was alive. John saw and he believed. And so for John, Jesus' resurrection was sufficient for John's faith to be solidified. Jesus' resurrection was sufficient for John's faith to become real. And so another thing, John, he didn't need a theology degree or a comprehensive understanding of the scripture to, to have this real, genuine faith. And so there are times as we go throughout the New Testament that, that we see even in Acts, a jailer asks Paul uh, what he must do to be saved. And Paul says, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. And then in Romans 10, uh, Paul says something to the same effect. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John realized that Jesus had risen from the dead and he trusted that Jesus was this promised king who would come to redeem God's people and he believed. And so faith entails belief and trust in Jesus. That's it. Nothing else. So even though we gain immense benefits from seeing the goodness and the glory and the majesty and the honor uh, of, of God's great and holy name in the scriptures as we come to a better understanding of them, even as useful as the scriptures are for molding us into Christ's image, the only thing that's necessary for real faith is belief and trust in Jesus, the risen King. Amen. 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 Then it's out of that faith that we then begin to understand the scriptures more and more and to be formed into the image of Christ more and more as the Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, just like Jesus said he would. So belief in Jesus, the risen Lord, is all that faith entails. And so one quick and a really interesting note before we move on. Um, we have been walking through John. We did talk about this story, but do you remember the last person who was resurrected in John? It was Lazarus. And uh, do you remember what Jesus said right before he rose Lazarus from the dead? Lazarus had been dead for four days. So Jesus showed up and Jesus said something right before he rose Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. And whenever he called Lazarus out, what was Lazarus wearing? His grave clothes. His grave clothes were wrapped so tightly around him that he had to be unbound. But we see here that Jesus, he's risen from the dead and he's not wearing his grave clothes. He has shed his grave clothes. So let's keep going in our story. And so as we keep going, we see Mary, uh, who's weeping beside the tomb. And uh, as she wept, you see that she also stooped. Something about this word in John stooping into the tomb. So she stooped and she looked in the tomb, but rather than seeing empty grave clothes, she saw two angels. And these angels, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
And this, this word that we have for weeping, it's not like whenever you watch a movie and think of somebody weeping, you think of somebody kind of softly weeping to themselves. This is not that. This is a loud wail of a sob. Everybody here knows, everybody around, everybody within a hundred yard radius knows that this woman, Mary, she's in pain as she weeps and wails outside of this grave. And so the angel, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is meant to kind of be a a gentle correction. It, It kind of implies you shouldn't be weeping. It's meant to kind of redirect Mary. But she, she either doesn't get it or can't believe that she would be corrected right now. She says to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And so just like we hear the story build up to these empty linens, you hear the story building right here? Mary is in immense grief. And the angel has tried to kind of redirect her. But she's still dug into the story that they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And she turns and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't even recognize him. So maybe it's just she, she was crying so much that her tears were clouding her vision. Or maybe it's because she knew that Jesus was dead. Jesus could not be standing in this grave next to her because she knew that he was dead. Or maybe it was a combination of both. But uh, keeping on going, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same exact question that the angels asked her, trying to redirect her gently to to another, uh, another path. And so then he also asked another question, whom are you seeking? And with this question, Jesus is inviting her to remember who it is that she's looking for. She's inviting her to remember all of the things that Jesus said would happen leading up to this event. And I was reading uh, Leon Morris. He sums up what's happening here in as, as simple and as effective way as possible. He says that Mary was looking for a corpse when she should have been looking for a body. And with this question, Jesus is trying to redirect her to that purpose, to look for Jesus' risen body, just as he said would happen. But Mary... She still doesn't recognize him. She says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And so she, she assumes that he must have been in this plot to take Jesus' body away and, and take it somewhere else. And so Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in, in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. All Jesus did to get Mary's attention, to spark her belief, just as John's was sparked with the empty linen cloth, was call her name. She immediately recognized Jesus as her risen king in the grave with him. She calls him in joy, Rabbani. We talked about Jesus, how he is the resurrection and the life. Amen. But he's also, before that, he said he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, we see in John 10, he calls his sheep by name. 
and his sheep hear his voice. And so Jesus, this good shepherd, also in John 10, he not only goes before his sheep, but he also lays down his life for his sheep. And so Jesus here, having laid down his life for Mary, having risen from the grave, Jesus the good shepherd called Mary by name and all her grief turned to joy as she realized that Jesus actually is who he said he was that he actually is who she thought he was, that he actually is the one God had promised, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Her belief was sparked as the good shepherd graciously and lovingly called her name. And then throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus calling his sheep to himself through a myriad of different ways. Some believe because the Spirit performs works through the church, Some believe because the Spirit reveals truths in the Scripture that uh, are also taught by his followers. And then a minority, um, such as Mary and the apostles and Paul, hear because they believe because they hear his voice. But this good shepherd, um, regardless of how he calls his sheep, his sheep recognize and know his voice. And this also, it's not just a one-time event when the shepherd calls his sheep to himself. This is an ongoing, repeated calling. He leads his sheep out every day. He calls them out to follow after him as he leads them to green pastures every single day. And so how often do we forget that Jesus is calling to us, leading us to green pastures? Jesus doesn't just call Mary. He calls all his sheep. And if you're in Christ, then you are his beloved sheep. Yes, Lord. And he calls you to believe in him and to follow after him. So, so many times we forget to listen for Jesus' voice as it's calling to us. Like the disciples at the beginning of this story, we have our own expectations that we bring to Jesus and what he's supposed to do and where he's supposed to lead us. And where he leads us where we don't expect to go or don't want to go, do we forget to listen to his voice? It seems that in the beginning of this story, Mary and Peter and John had forgotten to listen to his voice. They needed that correction. Why are you weeping? They needed Jesus to call their name Mary, to bring them back to what Jesus had been telling them all along. And so the green pastures that Jesus leads us to also, they don't always look so green or even green at all from an earthly perspective. How can Jesus be calling me to green pastures as I endure difficult circumstances, as I suffer? When I'm confronted with difficult circumstances and difficult realities, with pain and with loss, with disappointment, whether that's over relationships or whether that's over my career, whether that's just where we're not where we thought we'd be, if life isn't turning out how we thought it would turn out, then do I continue to listen to Jesus' voice? Do I remember 
to listen for his calling? Or do I forget what it sounds like? Or do I tune it out altogether because I don't like where I'm going? As Jesus calls our names, he never promises that we're not going to suffer. He promises the exact opposite. He says that we will suffer. And so when I encounter suffering, whatever kind it might be, am I tempted to doubt his goodness? Am I tempted to tune out his voice so I can find a better way to circumstances that I find more acceptable or preferable? Or do I listen for his call to bring me through whatever circumstance I'm in? Because I know that he's gone before me in any suffering that I'm gonna encounter. So how is Jesus lovingly and gently calling your name right now? Are you listening to his call? Am I listening to his call? And this question will at one point or at many points and at many times will be convicting to every single sheep in Jesus' fold because we all stop listening much more often than we like to admit. But the beautiful thing about this good shepherd is that he also, he leaves the 99 in search of the one who has stopped listening. He leaves the 99 to grab our attention, to bring us back to safety because he loves his sheep and he will tirelessly pursue them to lead them back into his green pastures. And Jesus is able to continue calling his sheep day after day because of this event that we're celebrating this morning because he is risen. Amen. And the author to the letter of the Hebrews, he tells us that this good shepherd is now our great high priest because he's risen to the very throne room of God the Father where he enters into God's presence on our behalf and he continually intercedes for his sheep who are now able to draw near to God through the good shepherd who calls their voice. And so we see that the green pastures of the risen Messiah are nothing but the very presence of God himself. Amen. Amen. Jesus calls the name of every single one of his sheep so that they will follow him into the presence of God. Regardless of whatever desert it might seem that we're walking through here, he calls us into the green pastures of God's presence. And he does that because he's ruling and reigning right now from God's throne room. So in what ways is the risen king calling your name to enter into the throne room and experiencing and experience the presence of the Father. So after Mary understands that she's talking to the risen King Jesus, Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, but go and, and, and tell the others, tell my brothers that I'm risen, that I'm going to my Father. And so John and Peter, where John believed and just went home, Mary actually runs back and she tells the other disciples that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so Mary here becomes the first person to ever proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen. And so then we get to the disciples um, who are sitting behind locked doors. And Luke's gospel actually gives us a little bit more detail here. It says that Mary did run back and she did tell the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they didn't believe her. It says literally that they considered it an idle tale. They didn't believe her. And so here they sit behind locked doors. And so um, on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, 
on Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And so doors are locked. They're safe in this room. And then Jesus all of a sudden appears and says, what's up, guys? <laughs> it's literally like one of the most common greetings that you can say. Peace be with you. Of course, there's tons of meaning behind Jesus' words. We don't have time to get into those right now. But yeah, Jesus pops up beside him and just says casually, what's up, guys? And so then in the middle of his shocked disciples, he shows them the marks on his hands and his feet and his side. And they believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then we see later as we go down that Thomas, Thomas wasn't with him. And Thomas gets a lot of bad uh, rep for being doubting Thomas. Uh, we tend to look down on Thomas, even though he said, unless, unless I know for fact that the resurrection happened, then I'm not going to believe. So Jesus later appears to Thomas and shows him the same things. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So he becomes the first one to worship Jesus as the risen God. Amen. And so Jesus, the risen lamb of God, the good shepherd, who leaves the 99 in search of the one, who calls their name to draw them into the green pastures of God's presence. He even draws near to his sheep when doors are shut tight. The risen king graciously pursues his own to draw them near to himself and thus to draw them into God's own presence. And so as we've been reading through the book uh, of John, we haven't necessarily caught it because we've kind of been zooming in on a few uh, key places. But as we read throughout John's book, we see that things move really quickly. I mean, this, this whole book is 21 chapters and it takes like five or 10 minutes to read a chapter. And this, this book covers the time span of like three years. But John slows down right here and he takes a whole chapter just to write about one day. And he takes several verses just to write about empty grave clothes. And so why would John slow down right here so much? Why wouldn't he just say that, that Jesus has risen? Why would he take all this detail and spend so much time telling us about how Jesus revealed himself to his followers? And he gives us an answer uh, in the very last uh, verse in verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so all the signs that Jesus has performed throughout this gospel, and there are a lot of them in John. John is packed with signs. But this sign right here, Jesus' resurrection, which is by far the most uh, magnificent sign that he does, all of these signs are pointing, are, are written down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Messiah that's been promised and expected for thousands of years, that he is that king that's come to restore God's goodness and his peace to the brokenness of this creation. He is the one who finally defeats death itself so that we can say that death has lost its sting Amen. because our king has risen from the dead. So John, he takes this much care to document these specific events, and he goes into this much detail to prove to us that Jesus' resurrection, it's not, it's not just some mystical ascension. It's not just that his teaching ascends death, but that it's his physical resurrection is a historical fact. 
Jesus, in the course of history, rose from the dead in his physical body. That's why John goes to this much detail to show all of this. But knowing what what we know about the world around us and how it operates, to believe that somebody could rise from the dead is so difficult. I mean, none of us have ever seen that. Jesus' followers had only seen Lazarus, and that's because Jesus did it himself, along with all of his other signs. But to believe that someone has actually physically risen from the dead, that's like almost an impossible truth to believe. It's so difficult to believe that even though Jesus has been walking with his people for three years, showing his control over creation over and over again, and telling them that this would happen, that they didn't even recognize Jesus when he stood right next to them in his resurrected body. The resurrection is a really difficult truth to believe. And so John takes this much care to show that these are real events because he knows also that it's difficult to believe. But everything that Jesus has come to accomplish hinges on the reality of his resurrection. This is what made C.S. Lewis say that Jesus either is who he says he is or he's a madman. And Paul says something along similar lines at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Then going down a little bit further, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But it's with this understanding that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then everything that he did was a sham. That this group of terrified followers of Jesus, hiding behind locked doors, later took to the streets to proclaim the glory of his resurrection. It's the same group of followers who, because of their proclamation to Jesus' Jesus' resurrection, they suffered insults, they suffered injury, they suffered imprisonment, and they suffered death. It's the same group of followers that were so convinced of the reality of Christ's resurrection that they're willing to endure deaths equally as gruesome physically as Christ's death on a cross. It's this group of followers currently hiding for fear of death that took on the threat of death with peace, knowing that their risen good shepherd all the while was calling their name, calling them into the presence in the green pastures of God the Father. This is why for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. For these followers, Jesus' resurrection changed everything. And so, if Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact, if it did happen, and we have so many more reasons to believe that it did happen than we have time to talk about today, but if Jesus' resurrection did happen, then everything that he said about his coming kingdom, we can bank on that, and we should bank on that. He's bringing a kingdom, and a kingdom is already here in part 
that is free from corruption, that is free from poverty, that is free from fear, that is free from worrying. Why? Because he has risen. This means that even here and now, in the midst of all the chaos of the world around us that causes us to despair and lose our hope, that even in the midst of all these things, he is moving within his people to bring peace on earth, just as it is is in heaven. Why? Because he is risen. This means that if you are in Christ, even in your own personal brokenness, in your own doubts, in your own fears, anxieties, failures, you're not imprisoned by those. They don't define you. Why? Because he is risen. And in his resurrection, he sets you free from the bondage of sin that weighs you down. Even though your sinful self remains, even though you not only fail to hear your king and your good shepherd calling to you, even though you might choose to ignore him and turn and run away from him and actively tune him out, even though uh, you might still run, Jesus enters through the locked doors of your heart to bring you back to the green pastures of God's presence. Amen. Why? Because he is risen. Even though we need to be over and over and over again drawn into repentance, we are free in Christ because he is risen. This means that we're free from the fear of death because in reality, to live is Christ and to die is gain because he is risen. He has gone before us. We get to go where he goes because he is risen. We no longer fear, him, fear death because he himself beat death through his resurrection after his death on a cross. If you're not currently in Christ, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe that he is who he says he is, then he says he has more sheep to add to his fold. Is he calling you into God's presence right now? Because he is risen and that changes everything. So the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection, it frees us to live within his kingdom every single day. If we are his sheep, then we get to live in the middle of this story of a resurrected king who physically sits at God's right hand in the throne room of heaven. We get to live in the middle of that reality where Jesus is our resurrected king who has brought his kingdom in part and will bring it in full when he comes again. We get to live in the middle of this good story that Christ is risen. Praise be to God for this amazing gift. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we're so thankful that we have a story so great as this. And there's so much that we didn't even have time to touch on today that point and scream to your goodness and your greatness and how you fulfilled everything that you said you you would fulfill in Christ. But God, I pray that you, as we go, would convict our hearts of the reality of your resurrection and teach our hearts what that means every day. I pray that you would lead us through through faith, to those green pastures that's the very presence of God because we get to rest in Christ's finished and accomplished work.
on our behalf that brings us into God's throne room and into his presence. I pray that as we walk through various pastures here on earth, whether they be green, whether they be marshes or swamps or whatever they might be, whatever suffering they might bring, I pray that through those, you would call us to rest in your green pastures, in your presence, because you have risen and you sit at God's right hand right now, interceding for your sheep and calling them by name to yourself. I pray that you would continually soften our hearts over and over again so that we might repent of the ways that we tune you out and ignore you. God, I'm thankful for everybody here that we get to celebrate your life together, that you not only died, but you rose to new life and you call us into that new life. And so thankful that we get to sing and celebrate that today. And it's in your name we pray, amen.